Andrea offer her teachings on Donna and reminding us of our, what she called our uh, natural freedom or the fact that our innermost nature is free. It, it seemed like a setup for um, a little change of tune that I, that I now am feeling in my mind after she spoke. And what came to mind was a, a very short passage, a very short passage from one of my teachers named H.W.L. Punja. Uh, and the short passage was, it was actually just a one-liner. He said, on several occasions, he said, marry the one who won't divorce you. What do you think he meant by that? Now, it's so obvious that this one-liner has many levels of meaning. Marry the one who won't divorce you. Of course, if you get married, marry somebody who's in for the long haul. But of course, he, he was really pointing to the, the deepest possible meaning of this line, marry the one who won't divorce you, which is to, to embrace, to make as your devotion that innermost nature, that natural freedom, that in you which, is, um, which cannot be taken away. Whatever it is in you that could be, as the Buddha might describe it, as what could be a reliable refuge. In other words, be attuned to what is uh, what what can and will divorce you. And what can and will divorce us? What, what will we lose inevitably? And what can we not lose? So first of all, we have to consider that there, the possibility that there is, there is something within us that cannot be lost as some would call it Buddha nature, some would call it the uh, awareness, some would call it natural freedom. In the Tibetan traditions, sometimes called the Mahamudra, the natural great perfection, Dzogchen, Rigpa, all these words that, that point to uh, what could be called a primordial uh, nature, a primordial awareness. That the very nature of our mind is, uh, is uh, unconditioned, unassailable, immovable, cannot be taken away. No matter what you go through, highs, lows, ups and downs, what remains immovable, what remains always accessible, uh, a reliable refuge is none other, than, none other than the very nature of the awareness uh, through which you are perceiving right now. So all of the teachings point to marrying this in you that won't divorce you. Now we reflect on this, or at least I'm speaking about this now, this natural freedom 
which is um, which are you could say our awareness is free, free from the beginning. It has no, it has no. The fact that you are aware here, it doesn't have a, a location, it doesn't have any height, it doesn't have any depth, it doesn't have any color, it doesn't have any shape, it's not inside or outside. It just, it just is. It just is. You're just aware and, and you don't have to try to be aware. It's just completely, utterly natural, uncaused. So if you try not to be aware right now, see what happens then you'll know that it's just so primary and it's and there's no it's not bound anywhere it's not there's no there's no limit to it it takes in everything it uh, it's not stuck between your ears everything is known all the it's known through the medium of the of of, of all of our senses of course but nevertheless that which allows us to Register what is arising in the senses is, some would say, is awareness. And of course, it's the way I'm speaking of it now, it's not very focused, it's just this open vastness, like and sometimes used, the metaphor that's used is like the sky. It's completely open, uh, free. But the, a funny paradox is we, we sometimes don't recognize it until we've developed, when t- until we've harnessed it to a certain degree, until we've actually brought it to bear, brought it into a focus on the reality of the present moment. That's why we anchor it in our body. We bring our, this attention, this, this open awareness, and we bring it very carefully into uh, close proximity to, in fact, to a place where there is no separation between that, that awareness, that natural knowing, and the felt experience of sitting here. No dividing line between awareness and what, is be, what we're being aware of. And it starts with our body. So in order to actually know you have a body, there has to be awareness. And it seems that the more you put, bring that awareness into the same location as your body, because our body is always here, it's not somewhere else. It's not just in our imagination. It's not. It's right here. When you bring it into the same place as our body, we start to. It starts to enliven. Starts to wake up this this awareness. And then you begin to practice mindful attention. And you see, wow, look at this body I'm paying attention to. It's, it's breathing in, it's breathing out, it's, it's moving, it's changing, there's aching, there's burning, there's stabbing, there's itching, there's tingling, there's all this stuff going on. Well, and this body seems to be, it seems sometimes it's very cooperative, sometimes not so cooperative. Sometimes we like it, sometimes we don't like it. We can't, we see that it gets, it, it was, uh, it came into being through no fault of our own. You know, here we are. And it seems to kind of grow all by itself, it ages all by itself, it gets sick, not according to anybody's will or wish. And then it somehow begins to, uh, the elements begin to break down and, and pretty soon, we're, if we're born, we, we die. So that's, that's just... So clearly, 
even though our body is such a marvelous anchor for our attention, such a beautiful, um, such a wonderful temporary refuge, we cannot marry our body because it will divorce us. This is, as Jack Cornfield describes it, this is a rent a body. <laughs> Yet, many of us, or I think all of us, are, I would say, our deepest identification, that which we're most identified with, that which we try to marry, what we're most married to, is this, as the Buddha called it, this fathom long body. And to the degree that our identity and our dependency is on this body, we are in a constant state of some version of disease, some version of, uh-oh, it's not quite doing what I want it to do. It's not staying young. I can't, if I have pride in my youth, I'm... It doesn't work very well. And it doesn't seem to stay healthy. If I have pride in my health, that's also a source of tension, of anxiety. And of course, the, the last of what the Buddha called the, the three prides, if I have pride in life even, in the life of this body, that's also not a reliable refuge. If I marry this as my source of well-being, I'm, I am, it's a setup. It gives me great pleasure when it's easy and vibrant and healthy and young, and then it gives me a lot of dis-ease as it, uh, as it ages. So that's what the Buddha called uh, partial, that's conditional happiness. Happy when it's comfortable and young, unhappy when it's not. And that kind of happiness, as you've probably heard many times on Tuesday night if you've been here, that kind of happiness he called lokiya sukha, worldly happiness, conventional happiness, that kind of happiness he also described as, the, as subsumed under the umbrella of what he called dukkha. It's actually the... It's, dukkha is unsatisfactory suffering pain it's actually what what is that, what we think is the source of our happiness ultimately becomes a source of of unhappiness cuz anything that we in anything we devote ourselves to that does not give lasting happiness is a kind of puts us in a kind of bondage, in a kind of makes us um, dependent, slaves to how it is. So that's not freedom. That's that's trying to marry the one that will divorce you. And you know what those kinds of relationships are like. They're really, really painful. And those of you who've gone through a, a real marital divorce, I apologize for using this metaphor tonight, if it's triggering or if it... But you know, you know how difficult it is to go through uh, separation like that and the struggles of a... Of course, we want to have a marriage that is, is as 
harmonious and long-lasting as possible. But we also have, have to remember that even the best relationship, I think about it every day, I'm in a very happy, happy marriage, but, uh, but I will have to say goodbye. That's the definition of getting married is you, you have to say goodbye. I don't want to think about that every day. I don't want to dwell on that. I don't want to be morbid about it, but it's a reality. I have to kiss the joy as it flies. You know the line from, from William Blake, He who binds to himself a joy does the winged life destroy, but he who kisses the joy as it flies lives in eternity sunrise. Try to do that with your relationships. It's, they're very sticky. Very, very sticky. And sometimes that stickiness, we associate that with love. But that's really the attachment, that's really uh, attachment that disguises itself as love. Love is open, free, doesn't want anything, understands that everything comes and goes. Birth. Change. That's the way it is. It's not a. It's not a drag. It's just how it is. It's not pessimistic. It's realistic. So I was when I was thinking about this. Uh, a few, there are three lines that went through my mind. Uh, so the first one was marry the one who won't divorce you, and then the second one was uh, from. Albert Camus, the existentialist who who said some pretty, we'll call them dharmic things. And the one line that often goes through my mind is where he said, in the midst of winter, you know, it's winter right now, supposedly, in the midst of winter, I realized that there was within me an invincible summer. So the beauty of, of the beauty of beginning and engaging in that process of opening our tight fist of grasping to things that won't give us happiness permanent happiness, reliable happiness, a reliable refuge. Engaging in that process of seeing clearly what is a reliable refuge and what's an unreliable refuge is the beginning of, a, of the process of letting go. And just as the Buddha did as he sat under the Bodhi tree, he, he, he observed everything that came into his mind. He aroused all the elements that, that we use in our, in our practice, elements of, um, as I've spoken about in the last weeks, of wise effort, of wise concentration, wise mindfulness. And he aroused this great power of mind. And when he, uh, when he aroused this power of mind, he experienced a tremendous sense of the joy of being concentrated, being totally one-pointed in the present moment. 
But he saw that, that even that one-pointedness, that joyous experience of being so energetically present and so one-pointed, he saw that even that was a changing condition. Even that we can't rely on. Even the most long-lasting, rarefied meditative experience. But when he didn't, and so he didn't allow the pleasure of that to just to become so intoxicated by it that he forgot what he was looking for. He remembered he was looking for something reliable. So then he, he instead of just, just floating away in the, ne- in, the, in the great pleasurable experience of the moment, becoming distracted by it, instead he used that power of attention. And instead of using it to just space out with, he used it to examine the nature of all experience. He used it like a microscope, like a laser, like a, like a, a powerful beam of light, shedding light on all the, the confusion and the delusion and all the, 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 the ways that we... That we um, act habitually, compulsively, maniacally, without even noticing what we're doing. And when he paid attention to that, no, no matter what he paid attention to, whether it was his mood, whether it was the mind that was seeking, whether it was the mind that was rejecting, whether it was the mind that was... Uh, he saw that our minds are always busy trying to get somewhere, trying to be seen, trying to... defending ourselves fighting with ourselves, fighting with others. Our mind is in a constant state of movement, movement, movement. Always seeking something, and mostly seeking something that may, that, that it will give a dandruff amount of pleasure. And the more he paid attention to everything, the more he saw that all of, all of our normal pursuits are conventional pursuits, that mostly we have what he called misplaced faith. We, we put our faith in things that just don't give us our heart's desire. And whether we know it or not, our heart's desire is for peace, is to stop and to, be, to realize uh, an unshakable sense of home. Is that, do you resonate with that heart's desire? I guess it's, first we have to be honest with what our heart's desire is. Maybe it is to, to just get married. Maybe it is just to be a success. Maybe it is to prove yourself. Maybe it is to defend yourself. Maybe whatever it is. Usually the hidden desire in even those things is to be able to have relief. Is to be able to say, oh, done is what needed to be done. But unfortunately, with most things that we engage in, we, uh, we are a success or we get what we want and there's a, a, little, a short little shelf life. Uh, we get a little pleasure and then pretty soon our mind is off looking for something else. So the Buddha looked very carefully with that power of mind and he just saw over and over that we're looking for love in all the wrong places. We're just, we're just going, 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 compulsively obsessed with what's next. And then he saw something very interesting about just paying attention. 
saw that just paying attention revealed that everything, everything in our mind and body, everything in this world is coming and going, arising and passing. And the more that he saw that everything, that it, in the, the nature of reality is, is change, it's not weird, it's how it is. Everything's, in, it's like a dream. The more he saw that, the more that process of letting go took place. His mind just stopped clinging to the things that were changing all the time. Stop clinging to the sensations, the moods, the, the pursuits. Stop clinging so much. doesn't mean you stop doing things and enjoying and creating and living your life with gusto, but you stop clinging so tightly. You stop associating your happiness with getting somewhere making something happen, defending yourself, protecting yourself. Instead, you see things just the way they are. And the more he saw the way things were the way they are, his mind just started to relax. And instead of being so then so captivated and addicted to what he was noticing, caught up in it, he became naturally pulled into what it, is, what it is that's noticing. And his attention, instead of going out with that long, bent-over neck that's sticking out, his attention turned the other direction. It was like this. And in a flash of insight, he saw that everything that he had been looking for, that reliable refuge, that one that won't divorce you, was none other than the nature of his own mind. The very consciousness through which he was perceiving. And then he could say with gusto, in the midst of winter I realized there was within me an invincible summer. And the more he studied the nature of that of, of that consciousness, the nature of that awareness, he saw that it has no beginning, it has no end, it has no height, it has no depth, it has no color, no shape. But because it was so close and because it's so invisible, uh, it, it was subtle. He didn't think anybody could get it. Didn't think anybody would understand. And as you all know the, in the story, he in his reflection he saw, in his mind's eye, he saw that there were those with just a little bit of dust in their eyes that if pointed back to their own natural freedom, they would realize what he did, that you would realize what, what he did. And then, of course, he spent the next 45 years pointing again and again and again. Don't look. Don't look out. Look in. Stop. Keep quiet. Stay where you are. And everything will be granted. Everything is right here. And it is only our 
the poisons in our mind of, of constant grasping and condemning and falling into delusion about what makes us happy, falling into delusion about ourselves, living in the idea of ourselves rather than the immediate reality, which isn't so easy to put into words. Rather than coming face to face with life, as I said when, during the instructions, we're great at thinking about our lives, we're not so good at experiencing them. We're great at thinking about our feelings and analyzing them, not so good at feeling them. So he said, stop. Use this body. Pay attention to your body. It'll bring you here. Pay attention to the feelings and the reactions in your mind because if you don't notice those reactions, your mind will start going, trying to go elsewhere. If you pay attention to your moods, pay attention to thoughts and images. Notice that a thought of yourself is not your th self. A thought of your mom is not your mom. It's a bubble. It's a dream. It's a phantom. And then everything that you notice will become the cause of your awakening, will become your path. Your confusion itself will become your path instead of something that just gets you more and more lost in the attempt to marry that which uh, will inevitably divorce you. So the third line I was thinking of, it all came very quickly cascading through my mind. It was a, a line from, I think his name was, he was a Tibetan Lama named Patro Rinpoche. And I, I think this is about all I can share, even though I have a bunch of little readings that would hopefully embellish some of the things I've said. But this third line was from Patro Rinpoche, don't prolong the past. That was the first part. Don't invite the future. Don't, don't alter your innate wakefulness. Don't fear appearances. Apart from that, there's not a damn thing. <laughs> so don't prolong the past. Don't invite the future. Don't alter your innate wakefulness. Don't fear appearances. Apart from that, there's not a damn thing. Or as Mark Doty said in his poem called Golden Retrievals, he said, fetch, balls and sticks capture my attention seconds at a time. Catch? I don't think so. Bunny, tumbling leaf, a squirrel who's, oh joy, actually scared. Sniff the wind, then I'm off again. Muck, pond, ditch, residue of any thrillingly dead thing. And you... Either you're sunk in the past, half our walk, thinking of what you can never bring back, or else you're off in some fog concerning tomorrow. Is that what you call it? My work to unsnare time's warp, and woof, retrieving my haze-headed friend you, the shining bark, a Zen master's bronzy gong, calls you here entirely 
now. Bow wow, bow wow, bow wow. <laughs> so what else can be said other than then if you one, to reflect on what your true heart's desire is and whether or not you are um, and what it is that you are devoting your attention to and also to remember that the possibility is as Andrea said, is possibility is to be free is to what the experience what the Buddha called the sure heart's release to no longer have to go out in search of of relief to be at home in your mind home in your body doesn't mean that you don't experience everything all the joys and the sorrows but you you experience a letting go a cessation I guess this is a good time for the, the old standard line from Ajahn Chah where he said, do everything with a mind that lets go. All day long. If you let go a little, you'll have a little peace. If you let go a lot, you'll have a lot of peace. And if you let go completely, you'll have complete peace and freedom your struggles with the world will come to an end. So isn't that what we want? This is all within our power. And it's all speaking about, it doesn't say the world's struggles will come to an end. It says our struggles with the world will come to an end. At least our mind will not be adding the extra, the compounding, proliferating suffering on top of what's already difficult to bear. And that's all we can do is, is try to find freedom right in the middle of it all. It's not possible to make a, a new world. Even though if our mind is at ease, the world does appear differently. So maybe the world is just a, pro, a projection of our mental state. Maybe it is. It's worth finding out. I know that when I know from anecdotally, almost every person I, who has done any kind of significant practice, even after a few days, the world looks different. And it seems that when people come out of retreats or have any kind of sustained practice in daily life, even they start noticing that people are nicer to you. That everyone doesn't seem as uh, as scary. And you start feeling a little safer. So what's happened there? Nothing has... What's happened is there's been a, a, a marrying, a moment by moment, marrying that one who won't divorce us. And so we're not walking around with that state of hunger, that state of thirst, that complaining, that judging, that, that maniacal tendency to be looking for something.
I'm not saying to everyone, as Hafez says, he says, admit something. Everyone you see, you say to them, love me, love me. Of course, you don't say this out loud. Otherwise, someone would call the cops. <laughs> Still, though, think about this, this great pull in us to connect. Why not become the one who lives with a full moon in each eye? That is always saying with that sweet moon language what every other eye in this world is dying to hear. So let's just sit quietly with a full moon in each eye, aware of being aware. Aware that in the midst of this dry winter, there is within us an invincible summer. Pure awareness. May all beings experience the cessation of grasping, condemning, delusion. May all beings experience the sure heart's release. May all beings realize freedom. And may our practice tonight, and any of the blessings of our practice, blessings of our life, goodness in our life be offered freely and given as a benefit to the welfare of all beings. May all beings be touched by our sincere hearts. Thanks for listening. Thanks for your generosity. Thanks for your practice. And hope to see you next Tuesday. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.